Friends, if you remember, Jesus once told his disciples, he said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. See, it's the truth of Jesus' victory that has given Jesus' followers peace and courage and It's the truth that Jesus has overcome the world is the reason why even after 2,000 years of very heavy persecution by really all the kingdoms of the world, that Christianity is still the largest and the fastest growing religion, and it just so happens that the places where it grows the fastest and the strongest are the places where it's under the heaviest of persecutions. To me, that's evidence that Jesus has overcome the world. I'm sure you remember, but a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka, over 300 people were murdered when suicide bombers entered churches and hospitals and and detonated themselves. Um, Most of those were Christians that were killed during worship. Well, there was something that went unnoticed that was pretty extraordinary the following week. One of the pastors... Pastor Roshan of Zion Church, a church that lost 28 members that day, he goes on national television and he says this. These are exact words. He says, we are hurt, we are angry also, but still as pastor of Zion Church and the whole congregation and every family affected, we say to the suicide bomber and also to the group that sent the suicide bomber that we love you. And we forgive you. No matter what you have done to us, we love you because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have that posted on my Facebook wall if you haven't seen it. But friends, I don't know how you say that unless you believe that Jesus has overcome the world. See, in Easter, we celebrate the truth that on the cross and in his resurrection, that Jesus' victory is ours also. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 John 5, 4 says this. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Friends, Christ has overcome the world, and through our faith in his resurrection, we get to participate in that victory. Christ's victory is ours also. Thanks be to God. And so today, we are still in the season of Easter. We're still celebrating Christ's victory over sin and death and the devil. But on the liturgical calendar, today is actually the feast day of the Good Shepherd. That's why all of our readings had some some shepherding imagery in them. They contain a lot of references to shepherding. They also contain a lot of references to victory. And so as I was reading these passages and I was thinking, okay, how does all of that fit together? I was really struck by this truth, that Jesus is our great shepherd because of the victory that he won for us by his death and by his resurrection. I think the two necessarily go together. You see, the shepherd is risen and therefore he can never die again. The shepherd has defeated all of our enemies, and so he can assure us that he can defend us from them. They have no power over us because they have no power over him. And so this is the truth that I want to press into this morning, because I think it's the truth that's spelled out pretty explicitly in both particularly our, our, um, our, our New Testament reading and our gospel reading. 
So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 7, and then also bookmark John chapter 10. We're going to spend most of our time in Revelation. But both passages, they draw our attention back to the truth that Christ is our shepherd. And at the same time, it reminds us of who we are as his flock. These passages are passages that give us strength to endure. They give us encouragement and hope to persevere in this time between the time, the time between the resurrection and the new creation. And for us, as his people, endurance and perseverance, those are keys to how we wait and at the same time participate in Christ's victory. Now, let me say this before we dive in. Normally, when we think of victory, the image that we normally have is of a mighty warrior, is it not? A mighty warrior. And that mighty warrior imagery is certainly an image that's found all throughout the Old Testament. It's found at the end of Revelation. However, that's not the primary image of Jesus that's found in the New Testament or particularly throughout the rest of Revelation. Before we dive into chapter 7, if you want to flip back to chapter 5, in chapter 5, what we see is, is John, the writer of Revelation, he sees a vision of a scroll, and on it it has seals, and he says, who's worthy to open up this scroll? And an angel tells him, angel says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of King David, he has conquered. And so he's worthy to open up the scroll. That's what he hears. That's what he hears. But in verse 6, he turns, and he doesn't see a lion. He doesn't see a conquering king. He doesn't see anything that resembles worldly strength. He sees a lamb, a symbol of purity, a symbol of innocence, but also a symbol of weakness. And not only is this a symbol of weakness, this is a slam that's been slain. It looks as if it had been conquered. So what's going on here? See, the writer of Revelation, he loves to mix his metaphors. He loves to mix his metaphors. We see that quite often, and quite often what we see is he hears one thing, and then he turns, and he sees something different, if not completely opposite. And what that does is it causes each image to really stand out against themselves so that we can get a really a full picture of what he's trying to explain to us. And the lamb that was slain is one of John's favorite images of Jesus. It invokes the truth of the sacrificial system, where the innocent dies on behalf of the guilty so that our sins can be forgiven. It invokes the truth that even the weakness of God is stronger than the greatest strength of our enemies. It invokes the reality also of what we, the followers of the Lamb, will experience, but yet it gives us hope. See, Jesus is the slain yet risen lamb, and that's a model for how we endure through every trial and every tribulation that we face in life. Remember, Jesus says if we're going to follow him, we have to take up our cross. He promised us that we will have tribulation in this world. He's not saving us out of it, but he is saving us through it. That's why he can be our shepherd. You see, even though the lamb was slain, he's still very much alive. Still very much alive. Not even death could overcome him. And based on that truth that this slain yet conquering lamb is now our good shepherd, and just as he was led through death to resurrection, so is he able to lead us through death to resurrected life. And we find hope because of that in the results of the victory that he won for us. 
And so what I want to highlight this morning is that there's, I think there's three points, three results that we can hold on to that are the results of our slain lamb turned shepherd's victory. The first result of that victory for us is this. We can confidently stand before the throne of God. We can confidently stand before the throne of God. In chapter 7, verse 9, the first thing we see is a multitude standing before the throne. In verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and tribe and all the peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, washed in, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now, the palm branches are certainly a symbol of victory, and they bring to mind the fulfillment of Palm Sunday that we celebrated a few weeks ago. But where I want to press in, on, particularly right now, is this word, stand. The word, stand. I think it's incredibly important because it's the answer to the question that is posed at the end of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, John sees a vision of all these calamities that are going, upon, going on on the earth, and they're pictures of God's judgment on the earth, and no one escapes, rich, poor, slave, free, kings, peasants, everybody. And they're actually even, they're, they're calling to the mountain saying, fall on us, because that's better than, than facing the wrath of the lamb. But what they say at the very end is this, in the face of all of this, who can stand? That's the question that ends chapter six. Who can stand? The Greek word for the, the Greek word that we translate as stand carries this connotation of being firmly established so as not to be moved. It also carries the connotation of protection. Who can stand? The answer is the multitude who are currently standing before the throne. Now, who, is the, who are the multitude? The multitude are all the people of God throughout all the ages, including you and me. Now, I understand there are many differing views on who the multitude are, and I'm going to get to that in my second point. But for now, what I want to suggest to you is that this is a picture of all the people of God throughout all the ages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's a reminder that we have access to the throne of God based on what Christ has done for us, and in doing so, that we will be protected from God's judgment. Verse 14 of chapter 7, it says this. It says, They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, friends, it's because of Christ's blood that we are made clean. It's only because of his shed blood that we are able to stand justified before the very face of God. Christ has granted us an access that we did not have before that. I love the way that Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, set your minds on the things above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden, protected in Christ, with Christ in God. If Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and if you are in Christ, then guess where you are? You are positionally justified in the presence of God, and that comes only by faith in Christ's shed blood. And that gives us hope to persevere through all trials. See, this picture also serves to remind us 
that not only will we stand before God, but that we are currently standing before God. If you have placed your faith in Christ, that's your current status before God. The German theologian Karl Barth, he calls this our twofold existence. And he writes this. He says, on the basis of Jesus's resurrection, Christians are already members and participants of the new world created by him. They are already assembled before the throne of God, citizens of an everlasting kingdom, and participators in eternal life. See, this is something that that the saints of old always realized, that we already, already participate in God's salvation now, which assures us of his salvation, which is yet to come. It is because of the victory of the shepherd, who is our lamb, that we can stand confidently before God. That's my first point. The second result of the Lamb's victory for us is this, that we are sealed securely. We are sealed securely. See, in the beginning of chapter 7, John sees a multitude. John sees a multitude. In, or I'm sorry, before he sees the multitude, he sees an angel marking the heads of God's servants with a seal. Now, a seal is a, it's a sign of ownership. It's a reminder that we are God's people and that we are owned by God. Back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the heavenly hosts are singing praises to the Lamb and saying, For you were slain, and by your blood you have purchased people for God from every tribe and every nation. See, friends, we are possessed, we are purchased, and we are a possession of of God's, and nothing can take us from out of his possessing grip. And that's the point that Jesus makes in our gospel passage this morning, which is John chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 10 and verse 22. The scene sets, sets up like this. In John chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus is walking in the temple on the Feast of Dedication. Pop quiz, anybody know what the Feast of Dedication is? I heard it. Hanukkah, that's right. It is, it is Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of lights. It's, a, it's a, a victorious festival. It commemorates the victory that was won by the Maccabean revolt uh, at, at, in 165 AD, and it allowed the Jewish people to rededicate the temple and to worship in the temple. And the symbol of that victory is actually the palm branch that, that the multitudes are waving. Don't miss, don't miss John's subtleties here. He goes out of his way to set that as the backdrop for this conversation. He goes out of his way. Because what happens are people come to him and they say, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the victorious, conquering one? And Jesus answers like this. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see how Jesus says so much with so little. Yes, he's saying, yes, he is the Christ because he and the Father are one, that he is the victorious one, and therefore his people will be victorious because they are held securely by a strength of which nothing is greater. We are sealed securely. 
One more thing I want to say about this before we move on. Turn back to Revelation chapter 7. Because there's, there's one more aspect I want to highlight because I think it shows us just how securely we are sealed by the Lamb. Now, if you read the first part of chapter 7, you probably saw the thing about the 144,000. And anytime anybody looks at chapter 7, everybody's wondering, okay, who in the world are these 144,000? Believe me, there are 144,000 different perspectives on, on who they are. <laughs> but... But here, here's, where, here's where I'm convinced, and I think this is a traditional Anglican interpretation. I am convinced that the numbered 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel and the uncountable multitudes are the exact same group, are the exact same group. Here's how this works, and I promise this has something to do with how securely we are sealed. Remember how I said that, that the writer of Revelation loves to mix his metaphors when he's explaining his visions. He loves to mix his metaphors. In John chapter 5, he heard, he heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then he turned and he saw a lamb. Same thing's going on here. In chapter 7, verse 4, he hears the number that was sealed was 144,000. Then it says he turns and he looks. And it's a, a great multitude that no one can count. He's mixing his metaphors here. Notice the numbering. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles times by a thousand, the number of, uh, symbolic number for completion. This represents the totality of the people of God, Jew and Gentile together, forming the body of the Messiah. And they are counted. Christ knows every single one of them. Christ knows every single one of them. From our perspective, the people of God are uncountable. But Christ knows every single one of us. God counts us and he takes account of us and he seals us securely. I once had a conversation with a friend of mine who said, Eric, does God remember me? Does God remember me? See, this person had wandered really far from the faith, really far from the faith. But she was in a place where she was wanting to turn around, and she was wanting to come back into the fold. And she said, but I don't know if God even, even remembers me or knows me. And so I actually pointed her to both John 10 and Revelation 7, and I said, look, if you hear the voice of the shepherd, then be certain that the shepherd knows you. You are counted, and he knows you definitely. Finally, my last point. The victory of the Lamb leads us to worship. The victory of the Lamb leads us to worship. Revelation 7 is a wonderful chapter that takes place in the context of heavenly worship. You see the multitude crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see the angels and the elders falling down in worship saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This is a picture of the church joining its voices with angels and with archangels and with all the company of heaven forever singing praises to the Lamb. And that's important because the key to understanding really the entire book of Revelation is the idea of worship. Quick Bible study. Revelation is structured in such a way where there's seven cycles. Each cycle begins with worship in the throne room, looks down at the events on earth, and then looks back the throne room where the praises of all creation are taking place before 
God and the Lamb. What that means for the Christian is that no matter what we experience on earth, we will join and are currently participating in the heavenly praises. That's why Christians, more than any other people, are people who know how to sing and know how to praise, even in the circumstances of life that seem less than victorious. Let me end with three examples of that. Paul and Silas, they're in prison, persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And what are they doing? They're singing praises, before the, they're singing praises to the Lord. The walls fall down, and they don't even try to escape, because even though they were in change externally, internally they were already free. And they worshiped. A second example comes from, comes from the Holocaust. Maybe you've heard the name Maximilian Kolbe. He was a, he was a Polish priest who opposed uh, the, the, the Nazis and was sent to Auschwitz. And what happened there was he stepped forward and offered his life in exchange for a condemned young man who had a family. And the, the guards took his, his offer and they sent him and locked him away to starve to death. And for the few weeks that he was starving to death with a bunch of other people, the story goes that he sang the entire time. He sang praises, and it brought comfort to him, and it brought comfort to everyone around. And he was able to do that because he understood the victory of the Lamb. The death was not the end. And finally, just this week as I was preparing the sermon, I was reading something from one of our own bishops who was talking, telling a story about a woman. Uh, her name was Gabby. And she was dying from stage four cancer, only had a, a couple of days left to live. And he went to visit her in the hospital. And he said once he got close to her hospital room, he heard singing. And so he kind of snuck in quietly. And she was laying in her bed. And the hospital chaplain, who himself was also battling stage four cancer, was sitting beside her bed. And here's, he's, here's what he said they were singing. He said they were singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I read that and I thought, see, that's it exactly. That's, that's this exactly. You cannot worship that. You cannot worship and you cannot sing Jesus is mine or oh, what a foretaste of glory divine if you do not know that Jesus has overcome the world. So friends, that's my question for you. Do you know the victory of Jesus this morning? Do you know the victory of Jesus? My prayer for you is that the victory of the slain lamb who is our shepherd would be yours this morning. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit.